I'm going to start out a little different. That's because I'm going to, everybody can listen in, but I've got a question for the children. Have you ever argued over who gets to sit in the front seat? Or maybe over that last piece of dessert? Or who gets the bigger piece of it? Or the bigger bowl of ice cream? Have you ever asked your parents, even teasingly, who's your favorite? Hopefully they didn't answer. Did you know that Jesus' disciples did exactly this? Or at least this type of thing? After Jesus and Peter paid that temple tax, Mark tells us something interesting that happened. He gives a little bit more color than Matthew does. So that's why I want to start there this morning. But in Mark 9:33, we read that they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. And he said, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You're probably familiar with a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. In fact, it was even found in the psalm we had in our Scripture reading this morning, and that is that God opposes the proud but he gives grace, he elevates, he seeks out, he comforts, he restores the humble. For example, James notes that he gives greater grace. Therefore, it's, it says God oppose, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that it, where is that it? Well, that it is the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. That's where it says this. For example, Psalm 138.6, for though... The Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Or Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on high, on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And let me let you in on a secret here. The Lord doesn't come down from his high place to do that. He brings them to that place. Peter agrees with James and all the Old Testament writers when he notes, all of you, speaking to the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So now you may be thinking, after quoting all of these verses, that this morning our study is on humility. You'd be right to think that, because I've led you down that path, but we're actually going to study how to be great. That's what Jesus teaches in these verses this morning. We're going to listen in as Jesus teaches his disciples and us how they and we can, in fact, be greatest in the kingdom of God. But this lesson comes with a warning label on it. Because that warning label lets us know that we have to leave all of our preconceived ideas, all of our assumptions, all of our biases about what greatness means at the door. If we want to understand what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven, to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we're going to have to put these things on pause. We're going to leave them at the door. We're going to have to really reorient our mind. We're going to go through immersion training this morning. Immersion into the kingdom of God. 
And we're about to learn what greatness means in the kingdom of God and how we can become great. And the question that we're going to have to answer as we go through the text this morning, as we work our way through it, is this, is will you become great? Will you become great in the kingdom of God? If you haven't already turned there, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to read just the first five verses this morning. We read, At that time, don't worry, we'll come back to the context here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted, unless you are changed, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Pray with me again as we ask for the Lord's guidance and help on What may be a simple passage or simpler passage to understand, but certainly is one of those that we can all learn from, that we all struggle probably greater than any other area of our lives. Father, we come before you once again this morning, just asking for your guidance. We thank you for your spirit who helps to instruct us, to guide us, to lead us into all truth. Father, as we open up your word, as we ask questions of it this morning, as we study it together, would we be those who desire to put into practice the things that we learn? Not to just add to our knowledge, not to add to our understanding. Certainly we we'll want to think rightly about you. But Father, help us to do these things. Help it to be seen in our lives, in our relationships, and how we interact with one another and even the world around us. In your name, amen. You know, there's a number of ways and a number of reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it is authoritative, that it is true, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. One of those ways, one of those many ways that I know the Bible is true, is that because there, it frequently, if not always, rings with authenticity. It sounds, quite honestly, a lot like me sometimes, whether I want to verbally admit it or not. Look at this passage that we're looking at this morning. Think about what happened in Mark that we opened with. It's both fascinating and a little bit pitiful. Look at how short-lived the grief of the disciples was from chapter 17, verse 23. This is just a few days earlier. They go from deep grief over the death of Jesus, over the suffering, the persecution, what he's about to endure in Jerusalem. They go from that deep grief to an amazingly self-centered attitude where they're arguing over which of them is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. If Matthew or any of the other gospel writers were making this up, you would have assumed that they would have tried to preserve at least some level of dignity, at least some appearance that they had it together. But instead we find them at their worst, arguing over who is greatest. Now, before we go further, I want to ask this. 
because this really orients us to what we want to learn this morning is, from what you've already read, does Jesus say that wanting to be greatest is the wrong thing? You can look there in your text. If you find it, let me know, because I don't see him saying that. He doesn't say to be, want to be greatest is the wrong thing. Now, in fact, he's going to spend what for us is several minutes telling them how to achieve greatness. But what he does, and what we've already read in our text this morning, so I'm not really giving anything away here, what he does is explain how misguided our understanding of greatness is. We are exhorted to greatness here. You've probably heard the somewhat humorous and somewhat embarrassing adage, you know, what do you call someone who knows three languages? Trilingual. What do you know someone who, what do you call someone who knows two languages? Well, they're bilingual. And what do you call someone who knows one language? Well, that's an American. It's a little bit embarrassing, but it's true by and large. Americans are known for being pretty selfish, inwardly focused as people and as a country. But it's not just language where this is found. It shows up in our awareness of other cultures. One of the places it shows up is in how beauty is defined. In fact, even in our own culture, the definition of beauty has changed through the years. What is normal or acceptable, even for food, can be radically different from culture to culture. That's why when you prepare to travel to a new place, especially if you're going to live there for an extended period of time, you may take a class or go through that cultural immersion, where you learn the different practices, things to do, things not to do, that are unique to the place you're visiting. Missionaries often do this, and they do this because when they arrive, they don't want to offend. They don't want to create unnecessary hindrances to the gospel and to gospel ministry, especially early on. Well, going back all the way to the Sermon on the Mount, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been providing us with this cultural immersion. He has been teaching us the practices and the standards and the way of thinking that is unique to the kingdom of God. It runs counter to the thinking of this world. It runs counter to how we like to think. It runs counter to our sin nature. It looks quite different than this world. And Jesus' training on greatness in these verses is no exception. In fact, it continues that theme. And so what was it? What was the occasion? What was the context that led the disciples to even begin arguing over who was the greatest? Well, it was really a combination of events. Over the past few weeks, Peter had been called specifically blessed, uniquely blessed, for declaring that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God in chapter 16. And let's not forget, it was Peter who got to walk on water. He had been selected, along with James and John, to accompany Jesus to the heights of of Mount Hermon and witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. And now, well, now Jesus, at the end of chapter 17, had just instructed Peter to pay a temple tax for himself and Peter, again, singling Peter out. And so it appears that jealousy is creeping in amongst the disciples, specifically amongst those 12. And so Jesus asked them then, what have you been talking about? And they go silent. On the one hand, they're embarrassed to have been caught. Children and parents can answer this question, and you 
Parents may ask, what are you doing? Or what have you been doing? And there's no answer. There's just sheepish looks. You're afraid to answer or embarrassed at what you are doing, so you don't want to respond. That's the disciples here. They've been caught. They know they shouldn't have been discussing this, so they don't respond right away. And so what follows, it is a discussion of the nature of the kingdom of God as it begins to answer their question. So it begins to draw out, you want to talk about greatness, you want to talk about who's greatest, fine, we'll have that conversation. But in order to rightly have that conversation, you disciples, and if any of us call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, this applies to us, you disciples need to know what real greatness looks like. What does it mean? And so in order to explain greatness, Jesus starts in one of the most unlikely ways possible, he reaches out or calls out and brings a child to himself. This is probably a very young child, able to stand because Luke says the child stood next to him. But it was a young child. And then at some point, Mark notes that Jesus put his arms around the child. I really love the way Mark draws that out and the tenderness of this interaction. There's nothing angry or harsh as Jesus trains the disciples here. Despite their selfishness, despite their self-centeredness, despite having so quickly moved from grief over Jesus' death to which one of them is the greatest, Jesus speaks and acts with gentleness. Well, the gentleness and tenderness are one thing, but why the child? Why a child to explain greatness? If you're going to teach about greatness, there are a number of illustrations you could use, right? I mean, you could talk about King David and his mighty men and their feats of valor. Talk about the wisdom of Solomon, the boldness of the prophet Elijah. There are many other places you could go, but he grabs an unnamed child from the crowd and brings them near. Well, verses 3 and 4, Jesus makes two statements about this child. But as you were reading along, did you read slow enough to notice that one of the statements is passive and speaks of entrance into the kingdom, while the other is instructive? It's an action one is to take who is already in the kingdom in order to be great. You see, entrance to the kingdom only comes to those who have reached the point of expressing their spiritual neediness, of crying out like a child, trusting and dependent on Christ and God to save them. It's recognizing the seriousness of your sin, the ugliness of sin, of recognizing that you not only deserve but are destined to hell and the wrath of God for all eternity, that you cannot save yourself, you cannot make yourself alive. That you are utterly like a little child in need of Christ. In need of someone else to help you, to protect you, to save you. And this is an appropriate place here in verse 3 to pause and ask, have you done that this morning? Before we go any further, can that rightly be said of you? Because if it cannot, there's, there's no point in going any further. 
Have you at some point in your life cried out like a child who is wholly dependent on another? Cried out to God to save you, to rescue you from the fires of hell, from the penalty that is due for your sin. It's the just and the right outcome of your sin. But it's a horrible thing. It's a terrifying thing. And yet Jesus took that with his death on the cross, the blood that was spilt to make a way for you and for me. And the wonderful news is that God is a loving Father who will instantly scoop you into his arms and welcome you into the kingdom. But you must begin by recognizing, like a child, your desperate need of a Savior. That's where this all begins. That's verse 3. Verse 4, well, that now deals with greatness for those who are in the kingdom. If you've been rescued from the domain of darkness, if you've been rescued from your sins and your citizenship has been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, then now verse 4 applies. And we need to look at this carefully. Jesus' words in verse 4 are rather short, maybe short and sweet. Mark 9.35 adds a bit more when it notes that Jesus also said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Luke also adds just one more statement in Luke 9.38. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. However, the question I have, and it's one I think we need to ask here right at the beginning is what does it mean to humble oneself as this child? We have that right there in verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, this child that Jesus has brought near, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Does it mean to emulate the example of the child's humility? In other words, is Jesus saying we are to be humble like children are humble? Many persons teach that Jesus uses the example of children because they are innocent and pure, naturally selfless. They do not get angry, hold a grudge. They're not prone to violence, nor do they seek positions of prominence and power. However, I'm fairly convinced that those persons have not had children and have forgotten their own childhood. And children, you can help us here. Do you ever get angry or upset? If the answer is yes. Have you ever been selfish? Yes. Do you ever try to outdo your brothers, your sisters, your friends? Do you ever want to be seen as more important or get that special treatment? I think the answer is yes to all of those questions. All of us can answer that if we're willing to honestly look back at our childhood. But if Jesus is not saying that children are innocent and examples to be followed in that way, What is it about a child that Jesus is telling the disciples and telling us to be like? I think it probably helps to know that most persons in the ancient world and in Israel at this time would have regarded children as relatively insignificant and unimportant. They certainly loved them. They recognized that they were the future. They were the next generation. But when it came to discussions of greatness... When it came to discussions of authority or respect, well, children, they weren't even up for consideration. 
As one commentator notes, Jesus seems to be referring to the insignificance and the unimportance of children as the ancient world saw them. Perhaps also to qualities like trustfulness and dependence. The little child can do nothing to bring about his status. All that the child is and has comes from someone else. Jesus' followers are not great achievers who carve out for themselves a niche in this world or in the kingdom of heaven. For all that they have and all that they are depend on the heavenly Father. I think that's it. I think Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must strive for insignificance. You must do as John the Baptist did when he said, I must decrease, he must increase. Now, if we're honest, this doesn't sound much like greatness at all, does it? But remember, and I have to remind myself of this, that everything we've been taught, everything we assume about greatness and what makes a person great comes from this world. Grasshoppers, cow tongue, jellied moose nose, or fried tarantulas don't sound like food to most of us. That's because we live under a different set of cultural standards. Greatness, as defined by the kingdom of God, looks and sounds very different. Because it is a radically different environment. As believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are now citizens of heaven. So we need to learn a whole new set of standards. We need to rework some of our definitions and how we've come to understand things. We need to bring our thinking into conformity with God's. We don't make God's standards conform to our expectations. We don't bring Him down to our level. Rather, we need to elevate our thinking. We need to measure it against the heavenly dictionary. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are now citizens of heaven, so we need to learn this whole new set of standards. This is part of renewing our minds. This is the ongoing process of sanctification, of correcting all the wrong teaching we've had from this world. It's the redefining of right and wrong. It's the redefining of priorities. And as we're learning this morning, it's redefining greatness. So what does it look like? What does it look like to make oneself insignificant like a child? To humble oneself and become insignificant like a child? Well, the greatest example of this type of humility, which also resulted in the greatest exaltation, is summarized by Paul in Philippians 2. Turn there with me if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 2, Paul writing to these Philippians, he tells them, Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What's the easiest way to accomplish this? Verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then watch where he goes. Watch the example he puts before us. Have this attitude, this attitude I just described, of putting everyone else before yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Verse 9, that for this reason also God highly exalted him. That is exactly what is going on in our text. This is exactly what it means to be great. This is exactly why Jesus was made great. Because he humbled himself and emptied himself to consider himself as insignificant and willing to die. Jesus set the ultimate example for us of what it looks like to humble oneself as a child. But what does this begin to practically look like in my life? Honestly, if we were to try and get too specific, we would be here all day, week, month, year, life. Doesn't mean we can't provide some examples. We'll start with what Paul's description is, because I think he really flushes it out, but it's do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Well, to ask how I'm doing at that, I, I think we start with the obvious. You know, how are you doing in considering the needs of others first? And you may realize this is a pretty hard thing to do. It's certainly hard to do it all the time, like Paul says I'm supposed to do, to always emulate Christ. How do I build that pattern? How do I make it a habit to do these things? Well, this is no different than building a pattern and a habit in other areas of your life. If you want to become a long-distance runner, you have to build a habit of running daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. If you're trying to get stronger, you go to the gym, and you don't start with the heaviest weights. You start with the lighter ones, and you build up little by little by little. You want to become an expert in something. You don't start with the most complicated aspect of that subject. You start with the easier, and you begin building and adding and reading more and more and more. If you go and try and do it in every area of your life, and that's your certainly should be our long-term goal. But if you give up because you're going to fail at that at some point, if you overwhelm yourself expecting that you can do it perfectly, you're going to be in trouble. So where do you start? Well, just start with the obvious things. When there's only two pieces of pie left, give the bigger one to the other person. Again, think of it as a muscle. Just find small ways you can give things up. What about your time? Are you willing to give up time that you would set aside your me time to serve others? Are you willing to give up hobbies, video games, other forms of entertainment to serve others? What about sleep? Are you willing to even sacrifice a little bit of rest to prefer others? There's any number of things, but just start making it a habit. Pick one or two things and say, 
this week, I am going to make sure that I prefer others in this way. And then to regard others as more important than yourself, well, it's hand and glove. These go together so well, but this one is also quite hard when you get down to practicing it. When it comes to preferences and expectations, are you really willing to lay yours down for another? It's, another? it's one thing to go serve somebody, but it's another thing when I have to now give up what I want, what I like, what I want to do, what my preference is. But are you willing to do what is difficult, hard, or uncomfortable, as long as it's not sinful, in order to serve others? This is especially important in marriage. Where in your marriage are you unwilling to serve your spouse? Where in your marriage are you unwilling to prefer them? Where are you being selfish? Where have you decided that your wants, your preferences, are more important than theirs? This one can be especially difficult because people are messy. I'm messy. I don't always do things right. In fact, that's really even too gently said. The word always shouldn't be anywhere in there. I don't do things right. But notice there's no exception given. It's not do this for those that deserve it. Do those who have done it to me first. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how are you doing in this area? What can you be doing differently? Make a mental note of it. Make a physical note of it. Put a reminder on your phone, in your planner. And take the small steps. Don't overwhelm yourself. I am thankful that... The Lord has not revealed to me every area of my life that needs to change at once. I don't think I could get out of bed in the morning. But he does reveal enough. His spirit is faithful to show us. He has people in our lives. That's why the church and the body is so important to be able to help us see areas that we need to grow and to change. And so begin taking those small steps. Just begin working on one. and You'll become aware of another and another but begin building those muscles, these spiritual muscles. It's where true greatness lies. It's in considering yourself as nothing and others as something, something more important than you. That's why the language of servanthood fills the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's why Jesus is his own life was marked as one that was a bond servant, according to Philippians 2. We're returning to Matthew 18. We have verse 5. And verse 5 is a little bit unique. It kind of serves as a transition into what follows that we'll begin looking at next week. But it also helps close out this section by again referring to children. And Luke includes additional, an additional statement that Jesus made. In addition to whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Luke says in Luke 9.48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, that is the one who is great. 
And there's an applied command, but it's presented by way of exhortation rather than admonition, where he says, you sh- it's more of an idea of encouraging you to do this, not a, you've been messing up, now start doing this. He tells you the reward that comes from doing this. And the phrase, in my name, it means simply as if it were me. Whoever receives one such child, and by one such child, the example that I've set before you, one who considers himself insignificant, whoever receives one such person who has made themselves as a child in my name or as they would receive me, does receive me. We see the same meaning in Philemon where Paul sends Onesimus, that runaway slave who becomes a believer under Paul's ministry, back to Philemon, that believer. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, whom he had run away from. And he tells Philemon in verse 17 to accept Onesimus as you would me. Or literally, accept him as me. Now, why is this so important? Why drop this in? In a discussion about humbling oneself, about thinking lowly of yourself. Well, it's because we like to play favorites. Even at church. It's what James warned the church about. Even at church, we can be tempted to elevate or give preference and show favoritism to persons who are wealthy, who dress well, who have charismatic personalities, who don't, don't come across as the most lowly. That temptation has always existed, and we must learn, as Samuel did when anointing the new king of Israel, David, not to look on outward appearances, but at the heart. Now, we can't see the heart the way God does see it. But one of the clearest demonstrations of a heart that serves God is in how it treats others and how it serves others. And this is the type of person the Lord wants to see received, welcomed, encouraged in the body. In fact, it becomes a hallmark and should be the defining characteristic of the church's leaders. As we conclude this morning, I want to encourage you to be great. I want each of us to be great. I just want us to strive for it the way God defines it. Think about what a wonderful place it would be. What a wonderful environment can be created as we get better and better at preferring one another, at serving one another at putting aside our preferences, our desires, what we want. Looking for opportunities to serve one another, which is going to mean giving up some sleep. Sometimes it'll mean giving up your special family time. It may mean, you know, having to go out of your way and be inconvenienced to call others, to encourage them. We have plenty of opportunities for that right now. To ask and find ways to physically serve one another in our homes, in our church, with our neighbors, and in our jobs, we have an opportunity to become great. To become a place that is a delight and a joy to be around. Imagine, just picture your home for a minute. If all of your children, all they did was prefer and serve one another. Now imagine the church doing that. What a wonderful place it will be.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation this morning, the encouragement from this text. Father, the encouragement, the admonition is really rather simple. And yet the application of it, we admit, we acknowledge is very hard. Help us, Father. Help us to convict us, to show us where we need to do a better job of preferring others, of putting others before ourselves. Help us to do that in our marriages. Help us to do it in our families. Help us to do it with our siblings. Help us to do it with our neighbors and the world around us. Help us to put to death that tendency to show favoritism. Father, to elevate persons by the world's standards. Lord, help and give us eyes, give us glasses in this life to see the world as you see it, to see greatness as you see it. Help us to see sin the way you see it, that we would repent of it and run from it, that we would seek to honor you in all that we say and do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.